We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Sometimes to encounter silence, we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it. When we do, we bring our basic recording devices to keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of ways that silence speaks. This week, Cassidy Hall travels to Our Lady of Grace Monastery in Beech Grove, Indiana, to talk with Sister Mary Margaret Funk. Part one of the interview begins today. Part two will finish next week with the entire Encountering Silence team asking questions of Sister Meg. I first came across Sister Mary Margaret Funk's work while visiting Gethsemane Abbey in 2013. A monk I was meeting had mentioned she was visiting and suggested a number of her books. Now, over five years later, I find out I currently live only 20 minutes from her Beech Grove Monastery. Sister Mary Margaret Funk has been a member of Our Lady of Grace Monastery in Beech Grove, Indiana, since her entrance in 1961. In 1994, she became executive director of the Monastic Interreligious Dialogue Board. She coordinated the 1996 Gethsemane Encounter and Benedict's Dharma Interreligious Dialogue Conferences. She spoke at the World's Parliament of Religions in 1993 and traveled to India, Tibet on spiritual exchange programs in 95 and 99. Her interfaith dialogue has included a number of conversations with people of the Hindu, Zen Buddhist, Islamic, Confucian, and Taoist traditions. Sister Mary Margaret Funk gives retreats to lay ministers, monastics, and a number of others on aspects of Christian practice. She has served on Thomas Keating's Contemplative Outreach Board, as well as Weston School of Theology and St. Meinrad School of Theology. Sister Meg, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. I'm very delighted to be invited. Yeah, I, I was very delighted to find out you literally lived 20 minutes from me. Just the southeast side of town, and you're on the northeast, northwest side of town. Yeah, so. yeah, so it, just an easy little jaunt. Uh, and as you know, our podcast focuses on silence, so oftentimes we love to hear just the initial meeting place of silence for someone, maybe it's a childhood story, or just time in your life where you realize silence might have been something important for you. Well, thank you. Again, silence... Is part of the monastic way of life. So uh, when I saw the topic, I thought, well, I could contribute. But it's hard to talk about something that isn't, it's ineffable. Mm. So do you mind if I play something first? No, please. This kind of relaxes me. Yeah. This is what I do every day in my silence. And uh, we're actually recording this in the music room. Mm. I take lessons on Monday afternoon mm. from Sister Harriet. But I'd like for you to hear 
in this silence uh, what this sounds like. Thank you for that. That was incredibly calming for me also. I usually get quite anxious and nervous when I do interviews, so that, that was very helpful. And also when I got here, it, it was wonderful that you invited me to come to uh, Midday Prayer. Midday Prayer. Mm -hmm. And that was really centering as well, just to, to be in silence with everyone here, and that was just such a delight. What, what is it about music that draws you to keep learning about music and well music is the closest thing to silence there is actually hmm. uh, it's a way to taste silence hmm. and um, I find there's three degrees of silence and if you could lead me through uh, this is what I've learned from my travels and living the monastic way of life all these many years the three degrees of silence the first is solitude and the monastery is solitude. Uh, a lot of people have a, like a shepherd's hut, or they have a, a cabin in the woods, or they mm. have some place they go on retreat. Or some people in their house, they have a special chair. And I know, um, I've heard people turn their chair towards the window. It just means that they, they, want, they don't want to talk. They just want to be in solitude. So solitude's the first degree, and that we have to find spaces and time and places that uh, create the ambiance, create, just like that music did, mm -hmm. it created silence for us. We mm -hmm. kind of breathed deeply, uh, we, our minds got stilled and we, our minds went towards the sound. So I'm going to briefly go through the three degrees and then we'll just keep sorting through these if you don't sure. mind. that's great. So solitude's the first and um, again, I would say I grew up on a large corn farm so that was a lot of solitude. I knew solitude. Um, in northern Indiana, there's very, uh, not very many population. It's, it's, um, it's there's a lot of big farms. And uh, so we had a 100-year-old farmhouse. So I was used to the solitude even in my childhood on a, on a farm. Mm -hmm. um, so solitude is the environment. Solitude is the conditions. Solitude gives you a house in which to be silent. And the middle uh, degree of silence is where you practice silence. You, know, you have ways of practicing silence. You, um, you disengage from work. Uh, and I would say that my recorder, my music, is a practice of silence because I do this in the solitude. It's a practice. Mm -hmm. and. Like here in the monastery, we have several practices. We don't speak from nine to nine. There's a grand silence at night till the morning. We don't. We have silent pauses in church in the office. We have places of meditation. We have our cells, which are silent. So, what inside the solitude, you need your practices of silence, where you actually see. It doesn't help to be in solitude if you don't practice silence. Mm. So you need all these practices, and we could go mm -hmm. into more 
in my travels how I've learned different practices from different traditions. But but silence is actually something, not nothing. It's a practice. Mm -hmm. So now the third degree, I'm going to shift right into it so you can see how uh, awesome this is. I mean, it's just truly remarkable. The third degree of silence is uh, stillness. Stillness. Where your mind gets still, your body gets still. You're literally suspended in the sense of being. Literally, sense is not just a theoretical abstract concept of being, but your senses awaken to being. Mm. And that's uh, the third degree is in stillness. And so again, back you can see why you then you need your solitude, then you need your practices, which mm-hmm. you know are, are have a lot of discipline. Yeah. And uh, and you need stillness. And and you could back, go back the other way. Sometimes when I give a retreat, I start with stillness, and then move into practices, and then into uh, the uh, the uh, solitude. Mm-hmm. So stillness can be a starting place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, now I'm going to couple this. I don't. I hope this is okay. Yeah, this is wonderful. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Truly. Well, I want to go through the three steps of a practice. A okay. Practice. Because silence is a practice, so there's three uh, steps. And the first step is observance. People would see that you're observing silence. Uh, See, you know, you're quiet before prayer, or like Mm -hmm. you came to midday prayer. You could see that we sat in silence Mm -hmm. until that gong, and then that was the signal to to go. So observance is um, very necessary because if you don't ever observe it, and that people could see it, you really don't know that you have it. So you need to know you have got observances, and it truly an observance is something seen. Mm. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, an observance here at the monastery is uh, you could come in and see uh, that we're at prayer, mm-hmm. or that we're at the common table, or that we're doing dishes. So observance is is uh, uh, again, it's not enough though, because what if you're just observing? But now let's go to the two. I just want to say, so also that reiterates that, so observing silence also reiterates that it's not nothing. Correct. It's something. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. It may be ineffable, but it is something. There is an observance Mm -hmm. of silence. Mm -hmm. And it used to be much stricter for a very good reason. And if you um, indiscriminately discard all the observances, Mm -hmm. you really don't have a house Mm -hmm. in which you can do the second layer which is uh, observance, and then there's practices. And mm-hmm. the practices are, um, practices require training. That's what the difference, you know, I just played for you a little bit on my recorder. And again, uh, people look at a recorder and they say, wow, how easy is that? Especially this little one, <laughs> you know. And I would just say to you that the, the simpler it looks, the harder it is to play. Mm. Because I have to do so much more with my embouchure, my tonation, my rhythm, my breath. Uh, so if the simplicity of it is deceptive. Mm. And a practice, in order to play this, I had to practice. Mm. I had to learn how to do each of the parts to create this music. But it's training. It isn't just uh, a conceptual understanding or aspirational. You know, I really did train into playing these instruments right you know so a practice is is training 
And, and it has to be habitual, meaning it has to be almost instinctual after you've learned it. But learning it has to be absolutely uh, discreet. You know, I still take music lessons on Monday afternoon, mm. and my music teacher is Sister Harriet, and um, she's just delightful and has so much patience. I'm her oldest student, not only in age, but in so many years of taking lessons from her. Uh, and we <laughs> smile yeah. because I'm also probably, it took this many years to get to the level I am. Mm. But this middle term, I'm trying to get at practice, why practice is important, that so that I'm in the solitude or in the observance, mm-hmm. I'm in the practice of silence or music or some other practice. But the third degree or the third part of of learning a practice is praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. That's what you do with your mind while you're doing the practice in the observance. Okay. So it doesn't do you any benefit to come to the monastery where there is a a space of solitude or even to practice silence with us mm-hmm. in church mm-hmm. or if your mind is someplace else. Right. So praxis trains the mind in the practice, in the observance. And that training is extremely valuable but very hard to come by. Mm. Um, there's there's all training of the mind for certain things uh, but people don't translate it then again uh, in ordinary time. So my books have been about retrieving, reclaiming, and reappropriating these monastic practices that have gotten lost, really. Mm-hmm. And you asked, and I'm anticipating one of your questions. Yeah, no, please. That article I wrote on what is the work of a monastery? Yeah. And I said it was silence, humility, and obedience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, where that came from was I was a trained scholar and administrator and teacher and everything, and had a lot of conceptual knowledge and even training to help. But when I closed my eyes and went into my heart, I didn't have any training. Mm. Nobody trained my heart. They trained my mind for conceptual, but they didn't train my mind for stillness and solitude. So the praxis got totally lost. So that article, What is the Work of the Monastery?, Instead of it being healthcare and teaching and and hospitality and everything, the work of the monastery is this inner work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this hard work of training the mind in praxis, and then having these practices that become a pattern, and the observances that holds us in this culture. And and one has to be open to that, right? I mean, somebody could live at the monastery forever and not not get into the. Right. So opening themselves to that praxis. Exactly. And we don't have teachers that know how to uh, train the mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm going to drop back. This is really the content of those five matter books. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. how did I come upon them? Which, let's go over those. So there's thoughts matter. Tell me the order of them, actually. Thoughts matter is first. Okay. Okay. Uh, Second one is uh, tools matter. Tools, okay. Third is humility. Fourth is lexio. And fifth is discernment. Now I'm going to go back through those five because if I do tell you about the story of those five books, that also tells you about the training of the mind, Mm. how I really Mm -hmm. came upon this. I was trained at Catholic University in very fine, um, actually, uh, phenomenology of religions, uh, a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, a lot of liturgy, morals, 
a very uh, state of content, you know. And I was diocesan director for religious education, which would be implementing the, the doctrines for children and adults in schools and in religion programs. So again, I was trained as a catechist, basically, in the Catholic tradition. Well, then I uh, became prioress of my community, and that was, we were Benedictine, and I realized that I knew all things Catholic, but nobody trained me in the monastic tradition. Mm. So I took the tools, the hermeneutical tools that I learned in scripture, mm -hmm. to do redaction criticism on the rule of Benedict, mm -hmm. and go back to the sources of Benedict to understand why the rule was written the way it was, and then, um, and then, well, to do this, I got a big lily grant, in all about two hundred thousand mm. dollars to retrieve, reclaim, and reappropriate monasticism for women. Wow! So you see, mm -hmm. I took my deficit, mm -hmm. my overly conceptual training, intellectual, and realized I didn't know the rule. I had memorized the rule; mm -hmm. I could recite it, mm. but I didn't know it from its sources. Mm -hmm. So I went back to its sources, and I found it utterly delightful. And no one had taught me those sources. For one thing, they weren't in English. A lot of them were still in Latin, and then the commentaries were in French, mostly in German. But anyway, but they started being translated into English, and some of my friends uh, got to me uh, deep uh, sources of the rule of Benedict. Now, there's two tracks to this story. One track is the uh, when I started knowing the sources, I found Benedict's root teacher, his number one teacher, of course, was scripture. All right, that was, I could, I could go there and understand that and mm -hmm. teach that. Mm -hmm. But his next biggest teacher was a fellow by the name of John Cashin, who mm -hmm. was a monk in, uh, you know, he visited Palestine mm -hmm. and uh, Syria and around. He was, he explored uh, monasteries. And he and his friend, Germanus, wrote up what they heard in those monasteries. They wrote uh, institutes and conferences. Right. And in all, it's about a 1,000 pages. And I, when I read that, I understood the theory behind monastic way of life. It had not been taught to me. Mm. And the theory was, first, thoughts matter. Hmm. The institutes are about the eight thoughts, mm. the conferences. Uh, and it stored in the thoughts was also the tools to reduce and redirect your afflicted mind. So then I wrote Tools Matter, which would be the... I was teaching Thoughts Matter, and I had a student who said, this is just depressing, food, sex, things, anger, dejection, <laughs> the city, finger, and pride. I said, how do we get out of it? Because we're all just, you know, we have every affliction possible. Mm. And I said, well... And I was in a classroom, and there was a big blackboard. I said, well, and this... Affliction. There's, these are the tools. This affliction. These are the. So I wrote tools matter just in response to that one student's question. Wow. And then of course I added more tools from the Christian tradition of how do you train your mind to get out of those afflictive thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was tools matter. But then I was in East West dialogue, and I was sitting literally uh, in lots of meetings. But one time I was with the Dalai Lama and a lot of uh, Rinpoches and high-level masters, um, and I sat back in my chair and I said, you know, Christianity isn't for enlightenment. It, you know, we really follow the cross of Jesus. 
Christianity, we don't really need to be enlightened to do what we do. Mm. It's to serve one another mm. and to wash each other's feet. And then I was reflecting back on Cashin, and I wrote the book Humility Matters. Humility is the theory behind Christianity. And in Humility Matters, hope this isn't too much. No, this is great. No, this is wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Humility Matters is the theory, the total theory of the thousand pages of John Cashin based on Evagrius. Okay. Okay. Who was his fruit teacher Mm -hmm. in Macarius and Mills. So I actually accessed, in the desert tradition, there's about 200 masters, 200 folks that that have written and have sayings and rules and and institutes and conferences. and So I, I took a good 10 years reading as much as I could of that literature and practicing it as I understood it. Mm. So I, okay, so humility matters is the theory of the contemplative life from a Christian point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was in East-West Dialogue, and I'm just stepping aside. See, Thoughts Matter was a Christian training of the mind. Mm-hmm. So when I was at these meetings uh, for Buddhist and whatever, I would teach the Christian. Sure. So Thoughts Matter was the text. Mm-hmm. And I got great affirmation. Plus, that's why that book is so good. I got great attention to make it sharp and clear mm-hmm. and compelling. And that's also why I footnoted it so, why I do footnotes. Yeah. Because I did not invent any of this stuff. I just mm. recovered it. Mm-hmm. Again, back to from my Lily Grants, retrieve, reclaim, reappropriate. Mm-hmm. So that's all I've done from this basically desert tradition. Okay, then back to humility matters. It's the theory of the contemplative journey. And there's four parts. First is renunciation of your former way of life. And following your baptism, mm-hmm. your following Christ. It's it's above the river, I call it. It's just doing good and avoiding evil. Mm-hmm. The second renunciation are to renounce the thoughts that that lead you into harming others or yourself, you know, violence. Mm-hmm. So the afflictive thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's a second renunciation. Most people never get out of that one. There's a third renunciation, though, and this is John Cashin, who wrote this in the in the years 400s. So we're talking a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But Benedict quotes it all the time. Uh, 154 times. Wait, Benedict says that how many times? Well, he accesses this okay. teaching of okay. John Cashin okay. over 150 times. Wow. I mean, it's his main teacher. Mm. And if you don't know Cashin, you don't know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the third renunciation is renounce your thoughts of God because any thought of God is not God. It's just another thought. Hmm. Wow. And you're not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's brilliant. Yeah. So you can yeah. see it really helped me in East-West Dialogue. Absolutely. You right. know, I could receive and accept everyone's thoughts and conceptions and, you know, total systematic landscapes and uh-huh. this and that because I was renouncing my thought of God, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, now it doesn't mean I renounced God. I just renounced my thought of God. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. But there is a fourth renunciation. It's very thin, but Columbus Stewart of St. John's helped me find it. He said, Meg, you've, you're in, in uh, Thoughts Matter. I only had three renunciations. But in humility, I think I got the fourth one. I know I did. I got the fourth one. And it is to renounce your thoughts of yourself. Mm. Because you're not your thought of yourself either. Wow. Yeah. Right. So do you want me to stop and play a little music? 
<laughs> Some thinking music? Well, or, or, this or, is an or taking lot. it in music, rather, I guess. I don't yeah. know. But I'm only on humility. Mm. I've got a few more books to insert. Yeah, no. Yeah, sure. Let's do a little. Let's do just a little music. A little music. It's, you know, this is. Uh, and I'm sorry, this is the soprano recorder? This is the soprano, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got this in Ireland. It's a lovely little mm. instrument. conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. You know, you're the first person on the podcast to play an instrument for us. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. So thank you very much for that. Um, and before you finish with your books, I just want to say, so earlier today, Sister Meg was giving me a tour kind of, of, of everything, and she pointed out a room where she offers spiritual direction, and the two chairs are facing outward towards the window, when earlier she had mentioned about that kind of signifying solitude. I thought just the uniqueness of setting up solitude in a way, even in spiritual direction, is a really interesting and beautiful thing, in my opinion. But I like that too. And even um, I like us both looking out at nature. And spiritual direction isn't from me. Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't a one-to-one. That's what's different about the East and the West. Mm-hmm. In the West, Christ is the director, mm-hmm. and we just listen to uh, the uh, thoughts that rise. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is how I do spiritual direction. I listen to the person, mm-hmm. and then I know my thoughts, and I watch my thoughts, and I see which one is uh, ready to come, and then I pray a little bit uh, and ask what, you know, then I respond to that thought, to that. So in other words, it's more observing my thoughts than thinking my thoughts. That's a big difference. Right, right. Like in the Orthodox tradition, too, confession is side by side in front of an icon. And that's the Christian way. We we really, uh, there's only one face, and that's the face of our Lord. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then we're all on the journey together. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, part of it. Yeah. So. Wow. So okay, let's let's finish up. The, okay. The, the so humility. Yeah. Uh, I noticed uh, the sales of humility they drop around Christmas. Nobody tends to mm. give humility matters to their friends. <laughs> um, That's quite the stocking stuffer. <laughs> you know, it's the least uh, a book, but it is. It's a mega theory of the 
Christian contemplative journey, though, mm. and I've taught it often. Uh, and then when once it's once you know it, and that's what it's doing. Humility is just uh, it means you neither put yourself up in vainglory nor down in dejection. Mm. Humility is truth as you know it, and uh, and, and the truth is we're all uh, sinners. And it's interesting about being a sinner; it's so freeing. And you feel like a sinner when you know God. You know you're not God, and the word for not being God is a sinner. Mm. So you know it's not negative to me. It's really good. One time I had a uh, nun here from uh, mm, Taiwan, was it or uh, yeah, Philippines? Anyway, I was teaching at the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. She said, "I'm not a sinner." So I stood up and I said, "You know, you come back when you are." Mm-hmm. So she left. <laughs> We're talking going back to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And about three, four years later, I got a call. And it was this sister, and she said, guess what? Mm. I am a sinner. Mm. You know, she had the realization of not being God and that the word sin is freeing because we don't, we don't have to do all that effort. Yeah. We just respond. So humility is that kind of relationship with God. That's, I mean, that's just such a freeing thought for me to mm-hmm. think just, you know, uh, acknowledging my place as a sinner isn't negative. It's just saying it's largely saying I'm not God. Mm-hmm. Because caring, I'm a sinner with that sense of humility. Mm-hmm. It's not. Sorry, I'm just I'm processing. No, <laughs> this is like a spiritual direction moment. <laughs> no, I, I remember. Uh, in fact, I've often at big conferences, like mm-hmm. we're talking about, like LA Congress or something like that. I always get the question, Sister, is there? Uh, can you use another word than sin? Mm-hmm. And I would always respond gently. I always know that's coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that word is offensive to me. And I said, well, it shouldn't be. I mean, it, it is. there is no other word in the lexicon that helps us know our right relationship. Mm. And also, it's our right effort. I, I do as well as I can as a sinner. And you know, this sinfulness is a way to understand the human condition. In other words, wow, no wonder it is so difficult to navigate. I'm in the domain of sin and oppression and people are you know there's really violence here yeah and and i need a way of accepting that Mm -hmm. and not saying oh it's not so or it's my fault or i can do something about it or you know blame somebody no it just is a it's a at homeness Mm -hmm. humility Mm -hmm. the hubris the human the land the earth it's, it's the way it is mm-hmm. for us. Now, again, I, I've been in a lot of East-West dialogue. Com- uh, t- you know, they would believe in karma, and there is the, you know, karmic energy of you, you reap as you sow, and then there's many, many lifetimes to work it out, and, you know, there's many deities, or it depends on which tradition it is. Mm-hmm. But I find these religions all like rivers, and they're very distinct rivers, and when you're in one river... You would do well to swim in that river and not jump over to the other river that has a different velocity, different uh, energy system. Um, When I take people on in spiritual Hmm. direction, if indeed they have done way too many initiations in another tradition, I I don't have the um, capacity to sort out those energies. Uh, It's better for me Mm -hmm. that they're either just nothing and that we can start the Christian way of life, or they're just, uh, you know, that I can find their Christian roots mm-hmm. in the culture. I'm a little bit off. So humility, okay. you see, is just marvelous. Mm-hmm. It's a place to be. 
And, and people also mis mistake that word humility, much like sin. I think yes. where, where they think humility is being self deprecating or being demeaning or to ourselves, and really, it's uh, you know, it's it's not. And that. you would refrain from that kind of uh, you know. Again, self esteem uh, can't be raised by thinking me better than I am. Mm. Self esteem is by accepting just the way in which it is mm. that it is that God is. That mm -hmm. my spouse is that mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. community is the way it is, you know. Right. Uh, so isness is uh, mm. the preferred, rather than creating another alternative universe. Uh, again, it, back to that fourth renunciation mm -hmm. to renounce uh, my own fabricated conceptual framework that I made up. Mm -hmm. You know, an alternative universe. Right. So. As hard as reality is, <laughs> but again, the practice of silence is practice in okay. Well, what is it? Yeah. And then you now uh, let's finish the books, and then I want to do a little exercise on silence. Okay. For you. All right. The next book then came out of um, tools matter. So um, humility. People asked, well. What is the main prayer practice? If I could only do one prayer practice, what would it be? And I discovered that the main prayer practice in the Christian tradition that is like and a parallel and a companion to the practices in the uh, Hindu and Buddhist traditions uh, would be Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina. Mm -hmm. But Lexio Divina had uh, literally been lost and people appropriated spiritual reading instead of Lexio Divina and or some other meditation practice. Lexa Divina is a distinct prayer form, a genre. Also. So I um, wrote the book on Lexio Matters, and I, that, that really is um, Henri de Lubac, who wrote Medieval Exegesis, uh, bringing out the way the, the earlier reading of Scripture through the spiritual senses. So I retrieved, reclaimed, and reappropriated, and I used the book of Jonah. And uh, wow. so Lexa Divina is a fairly scholarly book, but the same thing. I wanted that prayer form that got totally lost. Nobody taught it to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I didn't get it at Catholic U. You know, uh, when I got that grant uh, from Lily, I went out to Snowmass to Thomas Keating. Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. said, Thomas, I understand you do Lexa Divina. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, I don't. I do centering prayer. I'll teach you centering. So I, I learned centering prayer, but I had to learn Lexa Divina on my own. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anybody doing it. Hmm in the sustained manner, which is in that book. And I have another paper on how Lexa Divina got lost and and how it's being used again today. It's coming back. And, you know, notice you understand that prayer form. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So especially the scripture folks have, have really helped. So anyway, that book, it was um, uh, Lexio Matters. And I thought it was all finished writing until I was teaching <laughs> again. And I saw, and also in spiritual direction, people would go a different direction in between our comp our talks, and I'd say, well, you know, they're not doing any discernment, or at least they're not sharing it with me. And then I, I noticed people didn't have a way of making decisions through discernment, which means you ask the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> that discernment matters. You know, if you're going to yeah. uh, be God-conscious and do this practice of solitude and silence and stillness, in that you're going to have the next big decision rises. Mm -hmm. So people needed a way to make decisions. And then in doing that research on the desert tradition, which would be late antiquity, 
So we're talking about the year 200 to 700. I found that over a third of that material was all on discernment. Mm. Give me a word that I may live, you know, and that was yeah. the 2000 sayings. And so people came to these desert elders for decisions. Yeah. But, but nobody was teaching people, you know, they gave opinions and they tell people were going from here to there. But what was the way of discernment in that tradition? So that book was hard to write. I wrote five drafts. Of that book. Wow, of discernment matters. I did. Mm -hmm. That was very difficult because that's a huge field, discernment. Mm -hmm. And so that is what that book is, Discernment Matters. How do you make decisions through the guidance of the Holy Spirit today? Mm -hmm. And what would be a method? You know, Mm -hmm. basically the method goes like this. First of all, get the right question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you come down one side or the other, say, I'm going to say yes. Well, I'll just take this podcast. Okay. All right. I get this email from Sister Ann Patrice and um, she said you it's an invitation. But I didn't just say yes. I put it into prayer. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the question was, do I do this or not? I thought that was the question. Yes or no. Mm-hmm. So I put it in prayer and I virtually decided, well, I think I could do this. I, I uh, it, I've got the material. I just have to share it with somebody, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm getting older. I'm 75 now, you know. And I'm traveling. I'm, I'm liking travel less and less. Mm. Well, anyway, so I virtually said yes. But then I watched my thoughts and sorted them into buckets. Um, against doing this was in the bucket was was just showing off for others. Mm. Another bucket is myself. It's just self-centered. Another bucket was God. Another bucket was evil. So mm. I tried to, but notice I'm observing my thoughts and not thinking my thoughts. Right. This discernment process is not analytics, plus right. minus, plus and minus. And also not, yeah, not judging what we're... Yeah, not yeah. consulting with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, when you consult with somebody, they'll just tell you what they would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, now again, discernment means going the way of God. And so I really always want to go that way. So I'm watching my thoughts. How do I get from here to there going God's way? So that's what discernment is, and I observe my thoughts, mm-hmm. and I watched him, and then uh, it seemed like a yes, but I did. I waited upon a confirming sign. A confirming sign is something that comes from the outside, pertains to the question. It's big, something I can't make up, mm-hmm. and it uh, gives me the energy, even though it might be difficult to go ahead and do it. So I waited upon for a confirming sign, and then I got one. I, I don't think I'll share it. It, it was mm-hmm. personal, but yeah. it was very, um, mm-hmm. you know, I could say this. You know, what's the loss? You were coming to my house. It's just going to be lunch mm-hmm. and yeah. meeting somebody mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. again, a confirming side. And then I made the decision, sent the email back. And then, and once you make that decision through discernment, you put a box around it. And then mm-hmm. you never go back on it. In other words, it's a decision. Mm-hmm. And if... Yeah, I have second thoughts. That's a temptation, not an invitation. Okay. So yeah. I, yeah, you know. Um, like I seal off that commitment and that. Right. And because you did do due discernment. I and, did due diligence. Right. And also I ritualized it by sending an email. Mm-hmm. It was already done. Mm-hmm. You know. And also in this discernment process, if I'm not supposed to do it, you wouldn't have come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I would have, you know, someone, something would come outside of myself. But I had peace of mind. This was what I was supposed to do today. Yeah. So, so discernment matters mm-hmm. is ways, uh, it's this theory and practice out of the tradition. 
mm-hmm. and why why this way of making decision is you know that has you know uh, has some examples of of people that made decisions and saints and mm-hmm. it was a, a difficult book to write because it's such a vast area mm-hmm. and I did have a parallel book on group decision but I had to just come down on personal decision for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I thought I was all done with discernment matters. <laughs> and again, um, Liturgical Press gave me the opportunity mm-hmm. to put all five matter books together. So I had this wonderful opportunity that a writer usually doesn't get mm-hmm. to take all my material and reposition it from a beginner to more advanced. Okay. And actually, discernment matters is for a spiritual director mm. to teach somebody that came to them mm-hmm. so thoughts matter is for an individual practitioner mm-hmm. tools matter practitioner but also some tools mm-hmm. and then humility is the overall conceptual uh, framework of of the arc of of moving from self-centeredness to god-centeredness to uh, union with god you know um, and then uh, lexio matters is the dominant prayer form and actually, in spiritual direction, I have people doing their Lexio Divina, and I'm just a listener to their Lexio. Mm. Their Lexio is their guide. Hmm. you know. And then, of course, discernment matters is uh, a training for directors. But I use it, it, I use it all the time for myself, actually. Yeah. So. yeah. And then, uh, recently... Uh, I thought, again, I was all done. Uh, You know, to be real honest, this election in 2016 was um, challenging for me. Mm -hmm. I had a bout of anger, Mm -hmm. and I had to go and get some help myself from a very fine nun. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I thought, you know, all the old ways of renouncing violence through, oh, the usual means of either research or demonstration or, you know, whatever, have been rendered obsolete because of the dynamics. Mm. So I knew we needed a new way to renounce violence. So that book is a text on how to renounce violence. And remind me, the title again is? Renouncing Violence. It's a gerund, Renouncing. Renouncing Violence. Uh-huh. Practicing the monastic tradition? Uh, no, they've dropped that uh, okay. subtitle. It is just okay. renouncing violence. <laughs> okay. And I'm kind of glad. The cover yeah. is one of Susie's paintings. You know, those uh, yeah, okay. the, the wildflowers. Yeah. And those wildflowers are the uh, what comes up when the earth is literally blowing its top mm. on a volcano. They're the first flowers that rise on the mm. volcanic ash. Yeah. Uh, so that's the cover of the book. And this, when did you release this book? Just, uh, what, October? September, October. So it's just out. Okay, um, but and would you say it's ultimately it was ultimately in response to yes the election yes okay and my own anger and mm-hmm. what to do with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to uh, make this an opportunity you know to teach renouncing violence rather than uh, con- contributing to the violence mm-hmm. so I spent about four months working on theories of, re- of violence ended up not using any of that at all, Rene Girard and people like that. I didn't use any of it because uh, everybody knows what violence is, but they don't know what renouncing is. Mm. So it's training of the mind to renounce. Mm-hmm. But I had a surprise in writing that book that that was actually very, very difficult for me. 
it came soon that my own practice in writing the book was to renounce violence in any way. Like if I was tired, go to bed. Mm. If I needed coffee, get a coffee. If I needed a glass of wine, get a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. If I needed to talk to somebody, talk to them. If I needed to hang up on them, I'd say, see you later. Mm -hmm. In other words, any violence in the writing that you usually do, put yourself under, you know, pressures. Yeah, yeah. Took it all off. Mm. And wrote leisurely. Stop. Mm. Listen. Into the solitude, silence, Mm -hmm. stillness. And just write a little. And then ask God's guidance. But... What was so hard about it was in the renouncing violence, this is, you know, where where it's delicate. I mean, I want to protect everybody that knows me. Uh, Wow, you know, I was confronted with more violence than I'd ever known. Mm. In other words, it really, um, I, I didn't quite have the experience of violence. Now, I can get out of telling you the details of that, by telling you something better. <laughs> we, we want it all. <laughs> well, the better part was, you know, in teaching, and I've done a lot, mm-hmm. uh, a lot in Ireland and England and Europe and India, uh, United States, of course, uh, Canada a bit, South America, Mexico. So anyway, that's those are the venues. But I often would hear people's story, just, you know, just hear them. And I uh, heard so much abuse, mm. people's ab- being abused, and the detail of it, and mm. the pain of it. And so they were coming to me to uh, offset their pain. So the uh, appendices of that book, Renouncing Violence, is very important. Frankly, it could be a book in and of itself. The appendices is what did I learn from people that were on the other side of their violence? Mm. And so that's what's in there. You know, um, I don't have a copy of it here. I would read it to you, but you might, you know, read those uh, anecdotal things yourself. In general, I would just say what they did was realize that only God matters. Mm -hmm. And God, the relationship with God, gives healing, provides the healing. They still have a sense of the violence but they get an overwhelming uh, grasp. In fact, uh, the calming God is God the Father. The healing God is Jesus. The holding God is the Holy Spirit. Mm. And the people on the other side of their abuse have all been held, and they know that nobody can take away their virginity. Mm. Nobody can violate their being. Nobody can even kill them. They can, you know, uh, they have a life principle that transcends any violence. And this sense of themselves is so much stronger than any violation. Yeah. So anyway, that I wasn't quite prepared to undergo um, the depth of renouncing violence myself mm-hmm. in the writing of that book, but I did. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com.
please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.